1: This is the Pitchfork Review. I'm Pooja Patel, the editor-in-chief, and today we're talking about the legendary electronic dance duo Daft Punk. If you're wondering why we're talking about Daft Punk in the year 2023, it's because they've just released a 10th anniversary edition of their celebrated and final album, Random Access Memories. This is their first showing since they announced that they were breaking up in 2021, and the album features some additional unreleased music. And stay tuned, because later in the show, we'll talk to DJ and producer Todd Edwards about his collaboration on the song Fragments of Time. Joining me now to talk about Daft Punk and their undeniable influence on decades of music are Reviews Director Jeremy Larson and Features Editor Ryan Dumble. Welcome, friends. Hello. How are you? That's, like, rude. (laughs) We're talking about Def Punk today?
2: Ryan, what's up? Hey, I'm here as well. (laughs) (laughs) Man, um,
0: I love Um, when the gang's back together like this. It's great. It's
1: been a long time. Um, Let's start with this. Do you remember where you were the first time you heard Get Lucky?
2: Yeah, I remember exactly where I was because it was in a conference room at Columbia records, um, Whoa, mic drop. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, I was, uh, lucky, no pun intended (laughs) to get to hear the album before it came out, um, in the spring of 2013. And yeah, they, they filed me a couple other people from pitchfork and other music journalists into this yeah conference room and i remember it had just immense speakers and it was turned up all the way and get lucky definitely stood out on that first mm-hmm. listen um it was pretty clear that this was going to be the one
3: she's a fun night to the sun i'm a fun night to get some
1: Yeah, when you say this was the song that stands out on the album, I mean, we're talking about Random Access Memories. And obviously, part of the reason we're talking about it is because this reissue comes in as like a slap across the face (laughs) of nostalgia for a lot of us. But it's also the album that kind of flipped the script for them. You know, it was like a brand new version of Daft Punk, who are these kind of like secretive computer nerds in our brains. Jeremy, you know, when you're thinking about random access memories next to Homework or Discovery or Human After All, like, what strikes you? How can you contextualize this album appearing after these other Daft Punk albums?
0: So there's a lot of incredible samples on Discovery, like One More Time samples Eddie John's More Spell on You.
3: One more time, i to Oh yeah, All right. Don't stop the day.
0: Aerodynamic cuts up like a Sister Sledge song. Superheroes cuts up like a Barry Manilow song. Face to Face is like this ELO, Loggins and Messina, Alan Parsons. There's tons of samples Mm -hmm. on Discovery. Mm -hmm. And Random Access Memories is, what if we just played the samples? What if we just took everything that we've been using to construct our music in the past and what if we did it live you know as the song goes on Random Access Memory let the music of your life give life back to music
3: <laughs> I
1: think
0: that's, that's probably the thesis <laughs> of Random Access <laughs> the Memory. The opening
1: song of the album. <laughs> Ryan, this landed in 2013. It was a kind of exciting and weird time for music. Like the bubble was about to burst on EDM. Um, This album kind of felt reactive to that. So could you talk a little bit about just like what the music landscape was when this album appeared?
2: Yeah, I do think the EDM boom is such a big... Thing that this album was reacting to. Yeah. I remember that being part of what they were talking about and just listening to it. You know, the whole point is that this is real. This is real instruments. These are real people making these songs in real studios as opposed to, you know, someone just click clacking on their computer like some EDM folks might. Or, you know, like this is the era when people were kind of roasting folks for checking their phones, like while playing to a hundred thousand people, like, you know, electric Daisy, like (laughs) stuff like that. So I think from Daft Punk's perspective and, you know, maybe I think they caught some of the zeitgeist. I don't think they were alone in this. There's this idea that we want to, we want to hear someone actually playing. We want to, you know, hear that these people were in the same room. This song wasn't just emailed over between, you know, like a singer and a producer, you know, like, this album did go to number one in America and a lot of other places.
1: How did the the response of, like, the computers are taking over, everyone is detached, like, music isn't real anymore, and so we're making this album. Like, when that first hit, did that feel authentic to you? Or did it feel kind of groany to you? I imagine that they are... We're not only reacting
0: to what was happening in EDM, but also like reacting a little bit to themselves, right? Like mm-hmm. they've had a career since nineteen ninety-three, like mm-hmm. doing big beat techno, do like basically reviving French house music. And you know, like when they put out homework that that changed how music was produced from then on, like how pop music sounded. Yeah. Like as soon as like Defunct came, which was this huge hit in the UK and that started this wave. And then as soon as Around the World happened, everything kind of changed after that. So I think there is a little bit of this self-imposed, like limits that they don't want to repeat themselves. They don't want to do the same thing Mm -hmm. over and over and over again. And I think like Ryan, you talked about that in your, interview with them around the time is that they were they were very much trying not to do the same thing again. And so I think the idea that they wanted to use real instruments and real music and get back to this thing was trying to make this love letter to the music that inspired them.
2: Yeah, I think that's true. And I can definitely see the groany aspect of this, especially now. Oh, yeah. But at the time... There's so much goodwill Mm -hmm. toward them. You know, this is their first real album since the Pyramid shows. Mm -hmm. Their first real album since Kanye sampled them, like, on Stronger. A lot of their longtime fans and, and new fans... We're just kind of like, we need a Daft Punk album. Mm-hmm. They become these icons.
1: In your interview with Daft Punk in 2013, where Toma Bangalter says, "Technology has made music accessible in a philosophically interesting way, which is great. But on the other hand, when everybody has the ability to make magic, it's like there's no more magic. <laughs> it's if the audience can do it themselves, yeah. why are they going to bother?" which is like a direct parallel to the conversation that we are having about algorithms and streaming 10 years later. So it's like fascinating how this just moves on a cycle. Yeah, and AI too. It's even much more apparent now,
2: this idea that anyone can do it. So it's weird because, you know, I think they're trying to have it both ways. It's like they hired all these really elite performers and studio musicians and you know they did a lot of things that no one else could do really just because they had the money mm. you know they had the vision as well to research who to get and all that but money is a big <laughs> big factor in being able to to make a record like this
0: i mean they spent over a million dollars recording this like to say that this album sounds like a million bucks is to literally mean it because they spent a million dollars
1: Is it a sports movie or a sex movie? Find out on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. New episodes drop every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Can we just talk about the kind of scope of this album and who is on it and the surprises therein? Let's just
0: go list them up. Ready? Ready? Niall Rogers, Giorgio Moroder, Chili Gonzalez, the Canadian piano player and composer, Julian Casablancas of The Strokes, Pharrell, Paul Williams, Todd Edwards, Panda Bear, DJ Falcon. I mean, those are the people who are just like featured artists on it. Not to mention the sort of cadre of session players that they got for this. And there's all these little <laughs> bits that they they did. It. They recorded it in these really famous. Vaunted studios of the 80s and 70s and 80s. Like one of the studios is, you know, the famous video of we are the world of everybody singing like they recorded it there and they used really rare microphones like they brought out the hi hats that were used on Michael Jackson's off the wall, Mm -hmm. like to, to try to like recreate this sound. And the amount of care and time that went into crafting the perfect audio file record on this is like a huge part of the story of random access memories.
1: I know we're getting old, but if you can remember when you hung out with them. <laughs> A decade ago. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. Yeah. I mean, I'll let you tell this story, but like the number one thing to know is that no one ever sees Daft Punk. They're always in helmets and in these like robotic costumes and shielded by pyramids of light. And um, Ryan saw them shirtless in a pool. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Shirtless. Shirtless in a pool. So can you just like tell me what it was like to spend time with them? Yeah, so
2: I hung out with them one afternoon. It was around Coachella that year in 2013. Anyway, they were staying at the Bing Crosby Estate, which is a mansion that Bing Crosby had built in the 50s. And it was one of those things It's like, I didn't really expect them to be wearing masks or a helmet <laughs> for the inter- for the interview. So I didn't, it was, that was part of the fun. I was like, oh, what are they, you know, really, like, what are they going to be wearing? Like, it's almost never been more relevant. So I roll up and they're sitting poolside in this great view of kind of the Coachella Valley. And yeah, you know, Guymon is shirtless um i think i want to say like in swim trunks tomas has a straw hat on uh <laughs> you know it's just like it's just it's just wild to see them in the flesh wearing normal clothes like never mind like half naked really and yeah they're <laughs> you know talking to them especially Toma, like he's kind of the the mouthpiece of of the two and extremely intentional like knew exactly what he wanted to say had a lot of ideas about this album. Uh, this you know, this sounds cold-blooded, but like almost like a marketing director, or, you know, mm-hmm. like or like a publicist. Like mm-hmm. he had that mindset.
1: The Daft Punk spin on this, which was relayed to you. Um, Tomas says, It's very strange how electronic music formatted itself and forgot that its roots are about freedom and the acceptance of every race, gender, and style into this big party. Instead it became this electronic lifestyle which also involves the glorification of technology. But it became like this thing where these people who are extremely distant and private and nobody has access to them was like, we're making music for and by the people again. Like this is for the people. And that whole kind of narrative, really, I feels like that landed. But now that they've reissued it, does this album hit the same way it did 10 years ago for you? I was so surprised at this
0: album when it came out. When you listen to it, you almost have to file it away of like, I will deal with this later because it doesn't necessarily have a lot of uh, momentum to it. In fact, I would say, like, that is one of the things that has aged the worst about it is that it takes very long for this record to, like, get going. Um, And then when it does, it sort of, like, floats away and falls off. But, like, listening to it now, it's different because you kind of know, like, this is their final album. Mm -hmm. And, like, is this a good finale for Daft Punk? Like, is this something that felt, like, inevitable but surprising? Kind of? Like, I, I kind of like it as a capper because... They they felt like they reached a logical endpoint. I wish I could have seen this live mm-hmm. because like what dance music is, is bringing people together and and the community and the spaces and the bodies and all of that. I would have loved to have seen, does this do what they wanted to do, like in that live space? That's like the thing that I still have yet to Answer for myself, ten years on listening to this record, and I think that's sort of like where this feels a little incomplete as far as like the Daft Punk as a band, but as a discography, I'm I'm kind of happy with this as the finale.
2: For me, looking back now, I would say it hasn't held up amazingly, <laughs> amazingly, <laughs> especially the beginning of the album or the first half, like is so slow. And I'm like, holy shit. I like double checked my phone. I'm like, is this on shuffle? Like, how are mm-hmm. all these songs at the beginning? Yeah, because those yeah. are some of my least favorite tracks uh, toward the beginning. The highs are incredibly high. But as a whole album of songs, I'm not so sure I'll take... Discovery. I'll take their live album from 2007. I'll take homework over this album like any day of the week. Well, let's talk about the hits. Yeah. Like, what are your go to's from this record? For me, I would say Lose Yourself to Dance, which is the, the other Pharrell song on the album.
1: You take my show.
2: the panda bear song doing it right is really good holds up but kind of like is it a little out of place on the album because it doesn't have like all the crazy drumming and stuff i do also really like touch which is kind of the psychedelic um the rainbow connection guys
3: Yes. Mm-hmm. Kiss suddenly alive, happiness arrive, hunger like a storm. How do I
2: begin? A roadway- Paul Williams is the vocalist on that. And it is like this, yeah, psychedelic Broadway show tune. Um, that's the song that it, it got my mind kind of churning on the subway. And I was like, yeah, maybe, you know, maybe Daft Punk might be broken up, but. The jukebox musical could be could Mm -hmm. be a great Mm -hmm. uh, an option, you know, if they wanted to exploit or you know (laughs) look back on their legacy like that could be. Love that song.
1: let's move on to this reissue. What is different about it? What is new? There's, you know, it was teased with a bunch of new unreleased recordings. Tell me what is on the reissue that was not on the original.
0: I don't think there's a ton of amazing reissue. Like, There's no like secret song that's going to blow up the radio Mm -hmm. um, like it did 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. They did have this, um, like the making of Fragments of Time video where Todd Edwards just sort of talked about how that came together and, and what that is. And that's, that's the song that that sounds like Michael McDonald's. I, I keep forgetting, um, which is, which is terrific.
3: But I think this reissue
0: is sort of, trying to elevate this record more than it was before to the classic timeless, if you own one record, you need to own random access memories kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, kind of like the the Beatles, Abbey Road, that, that kind of thing. It's really trying to take it to that
2: level. Listening back to the album now, the feeling that I get the most, honestly, is it maybe this is because I know that they broke up, mm-hmm. etc. But it's almost like a eulogy yeah. to... Yeah. quote unquote real music it's almost like they knew they might get a number one album they might get a grammy but they know they're not going to change the entire course of music away from computers like and i think just in the tone of the album how so many songs are pretty sad or nostalgic you know something like touch is like very sad like yeah i remember touch like i remember like it's not coming back, you know, like that, that's kind of the impression that I get now. Touch,
1: I remember touch.
2: Pictures came with touch. A painter in my mind. It is almost like more of an admission of defeat or like one last gasp before, you know, the machines really take over. And everything that's happening now Especially this year, like with AI, and it it only exacerbates that feeling for me.
0: It's when they realized that they were human after all.
1: (laughs) Oh, boy. So, Ryan, you recently had the chance to talk to Todd Edwards, who collaborated with Daft Punk on Fragments of Time, right? Yeah. um,
2: I wanted to talk to him about that song, the making of it, how it affected his life. He's one of the only people to work with Daft Punk more than once. Mm -hmm. He was also on face to face from discovery and yeah, his vocals are so indelible on fragments of time. I wanted to see how the song came
3: together and what he thinks about it. 10 years later, writing the song, working with them that second time was a, it was a personal life changing experience. I grew up in New Jersey. I never really thought I'd be leaving New Jersey to to move any place. I'm Italian. I came from a very like solid conservative Christian background, and I kind of like you know Italian guy felt convicted to take care of his parents. You know, and the first week that I worked with uh, Tomas and Guiman in L.A., I had called my mom on the phone, and it's funny because I'm at the Daft Punk office. And like there's a tree and I see a hummingbird. I mean, like it was like something you figure like you should hear those flutes from like those that classic music from a Bugs Bunny cartoon. I'm like, this is surreal. And my mother heard how relaxed uh, I was in my voice. And and she's like, you need to be out there. She's like, there's nothing for you in New Jersey. You need to be with your peers out in L.A. And it was like her releasing me, like giving me her blessing to do my thing yeah, I packed up a U-Haul that summer and drove out to L.A. Um, it changed my life. I, I, I it kind of helped me find myself. Uh, you know, um, I, I don't think I really had my own personality because I was, you know, living at home with my parents and for way too long. And so that part of it, it was crazy. Um, the, the second thing was being behind the scenes with Daft Punk on what they did and and seeing how they worked. That's always been. My favorite part with working with them, even when we did on Discovery, it's it's seeing this process, you know, this unmolded form of clay that starts to develop into the sculpture and how it's it's never set from the beginning. And it just is constantly changing, you know, uh, seeing the album evolve from this personalized album that was going to be kind of psychedelic and maybe a little trippy. To uh, having a pop vocal on it that made it a gargantuan hit, and then all of a sudden it became almost like a pop album, uh, per se. But you know, just seeing Tomas and Gimon get the, the best musicians that works, you know, with Michael Jackson and Eric Clapton, and yeah, I would have, you know, for me, you got to realize, like, I, I guess being an underground producer, I never thought in such grandiose terms. It was magical, and that's that sounds a little over dramatic, but it really was, you know. Yeah.
2: So what you're talking about, what you're going through when you were, you know, making the song as far as moving out of your parents' house, do you feel like that influenced the lyrics or, you know, even the mood of the song, this kind of nostalgic
3: mood? Do you think there was a relationship there? Yeah. I mean, you don't realize how unhappy you are until you have happiness. Like you can get into a rut in life where you just think this is life, you know? When I came out to work with Tomas and Guimán and just got a three-week dose of the sunlight, we went to parties, meeting different people. Uh, I would I have like um, I would call happy Tourettes. I I just kind of like just if I feel something, I express it at the spur of the moment. So it's like you know, I would just talk about how great it was. I mean, like we Tomas had a house in the hills, so we'd drive down every morning down Nichols Canyon to Henson Studios. I mean, like, that that view alone is not something I've experienced. In. And he had a convertible BMW at the time. So, I mean, that that actually, you know, lyric made it into the song. I, every every time I would express a feeling about being there, I think that triggered off Tom, Tomas saying, like, we're going to write this song about your three weeks here. and And that gave us plenty of material to write the song. I mean, just for an example, too... <laughs> We went to a, a party and I when we pulled up, it, it I got like this, I didn't want to say deja vu, but I'm like, I feel like I've been here before, you know? And Tomás is like, remember that? That will go in the song too, you know? It's like, you know, and we changed it a little bit, like instead of like familiar places I've never seen it was familiar faces I've never seen. But, you know, this, the, the, the essence was still there, you know? Familiar faces I've never seen, living. Tomás came up with the line, Fragments of Time, but the the whole concept I, uh, of the song, I have to say, I it was the first week I told him, like, I'm already starting to regret the idea that I have to go home in two weeks. Like, I was already starting to get depressed about, like, the idea of leaving. So that's kind of, you know, the idea of the song is, like, since I can't stay. And so it's, it's nice that these, the, you know, that Happy Tourette's actually helped in the writing of the song, you know
2: yeah and it's also sounds like a happy ending because you did stay,
3: right? oh, I did, yeah, yeah, just I came back, you know it they you know speaking to Tomas, my mother's blessing, it did put me over the edge to just take the leap, you know, my world opened up, and I found myself out here
1: that was Todd Edwards. The Pitchfork Review is a production of Conde Nast. Catherine Fenelosa at Rococo Punch is our senior producer. James Trout at Rococo Punch is our technical producer. Ryan Domble is our showrunner. Jessica Gramulia is our music supervisor. I'm Pooja Patel. Thanks for listening.